Everything that God does on the earth today, He does it by His Word and His Spirit. In the Pastor William Evans podcast, your host, Pastor William Evans, takes you through the importance of the Word of God in your everyday life. Whether you're experiencing the lowest valley or the highest mountain, the Word of God is essential. As we depend on it and read it daily, we form an unbreakable bond with God. We understand His will, what He wants us to do, and our purpose in life. Without further delay, here's another uplifting episode of the Pastor William Evans Podcast. Oh, gracious and heavenly Father, I want to thank you, Father God, for giving me this opportunity, Lord, to come to share your word, Father God. I pray, Father God, your blessing on every soul that's here, every soul, Father God, is going to hear this word, Lord. I ask, Father God, you guide us, Father God, with wisdom, with knowledge, and understanding, and help us, Father God, to always know, Lord, that no matter what we go through in life, Lord, you and you alone are our God. These prayers are in Jesus' name, Lord, and Father, I thank you for it. Amen and amen. Welcome, friends. It is an honor to speak with you today. I want to thank you for your presence, as well as thank God for privileging me with the opportunity to embark upon this journey of spiritual awakening and awareness. This is a journey that will include a discussion of human origin. It is my sincere hope that it will assist you in finding a sense of identity and belonging, both in Christ and the world he has created for you, as well as reveal to you just how important you are in this master plan. As we begin this journey, I would like for you to think about this question. Do you know what's investing in you? There's much we need to cover to answer this. We will begin by investigating three of the most influential factors in a person's life. These factors help a person define who they are and gain a deeper insight into not only where they come from, but where they are going and what they are meant to do in this existence. These three factors are self, culture, and purpose. These three factors play a vital role in grooming us into whom we are to become. If these are left unchecked, we could become something totally different. Therefore, we will address these issues as each builds upon the previous one. Let us begin with the most personal self. My objective is to give anyone embracing this lesson the knowledge to answer this fundamental question. How do you define yourself as an individual? Many of us know that we are not born with knowledge of self. The idea of self was fashioned by our parents in the culture that we happen to be born into. This is done with good intentions. But ultimately, self-discovery lies with us. One way for people to gain a better understanding of who he or she is as an individual is to investigate the roots of his or her family. Genealogy, the study of an individual's family history, is a useful tool when a person is seeking to learn more about their background, such as who their ancestors were, where they came from, where they established their foundations and the like. Although this is certainly part of the overall picture, a person should not stop there. Doing so gives a narrow view of who you truly are. 
Each of us is unique. And even though a person's family does indeed contribute a great deal to their identity and personality, there's much more that defines that person's makeup. An individual should also look to the biological factors, the study of life and living organisms. Doing so will allow a person to gain a systematic understanding of the origin of all humanity. This is important because it causes us to abandon a tribal view of self and helps us to embrace and become more open to our commonalities. For example, we see this in in small children as they are more open to play well with others because they do not focus on differences. They focus on commonalities. And this helps them become more well-rounded and empathetic. Let us not be naive. As we grow, we know that our cultural views and experiences that change this perspective, however, we are still left with the choice to adhere to what is right. Science, absent of spirituality, can only give a one-sided view of this or any issue. When coupled with spiritual truth, however, such a field of study can be greatly beneficial. Not only does it allow us to analyze the genetic makeup of everyone, but also the uniformity of the human body. Despite any preconceived dissimilarities, these differences can be economic, gender-based, ethnic, culture, and so on. Science simultaneously allows us to gain a specialized view of our own genetic makeup, as well as a broader view of humanity at large, never allowing us to forget that ultimately we are all members of the same race of creature, human beings, given life by our creator. This leads us to a twofold question. In what ways as human beings are we similar? In what ways are we different? The investigation of self, when we take the time to study biology, we learn that the human body is structurally organized into four levels. First, there are cells. Cells are individual entities, each of which have, has a specific task to accomplish to sustain life. For example, one cell may assist in digesting food while another may assist in carrying messages to and from the brain, and yet another in the fighting of diseases that enter the body. Second, we have tissues, which are a family of cells that live very closely together and work together to accomplish the same task. For example, the epilithial tissue, which consists of specialized cells that cover the exterior of the body, like the skin and the internal of the body, like blood vessels and intestines. Third, there is the nervous system, which senses what is going on around us and then responds in an appropriate way. For example, regulating the heart rate to reflecting the hand or foot. Cells and tissues come together to form organs, which are relatively independent parts of the body that carry out one or more special functions. Examples of organs include the eyes, ears, heart, lungs, and liver. These organs work together to form an organ system. An organ system is not just any collection of organs, but a collection of organs that are arranged in a certain way to perform 
a certain function. The most obvious example of an organ system is the heart and the surrounding circulatory system. The circulatory system functions primarily to circulate blood to the various parts of the body. The primary components of the circulatory system are the heart, blood, and blood vessels, such as arteries, veins, and capillaries. There are 11 major organ systems in the human body, and each one is essential for life to be sustained. This is true for all humanity. You're listening to the Pastor William Evans Podcast. We'll be right back after this quick word from our sponsors. If there is one relationship book you should read, this is it. We have left Relationship Matters to singles who are looking or married who are in trouble. The statistics highlighting loneliness are dumbfounding. Something is seriously wrong, and we are not paying attention to it. The Heart of a True Lover in Exposition of the Song of Solomon has everything you need to set relationships right in your life. Find your copy of The Heart of a True Lover in Exposition of the Song of Solomon on Amazon today. Are you looking for a new, fresh, unique Christian artist to inspire your faith and enrich your imagination? Then Blake Isbell is the artist for you. Blake's faith shines through his songwriting. Songs like Free and Zach have clear Christian influence and his song I Trust in You is an emotional prayer that he wrote to God in difficult times of change. Find his second studio album, Letters to Lipscomb, by searching blakeisbell.com. That is Blake, I-S-B-E-L-L dot com. At this point, you may be wondering why I would take the time to share this information. You may be questioning if it really has any spiritual value, though it may surprise you. The answer to this question is yes. All of the information I have shared forms the basis of the model the Apostle Paul used in 1 Corinthians 12 and 12 to illustrate interdependence and unity within the church. For as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so as in Christ. Paul's decision to use the human body to illustrate this was not by chance. His message was spirit-led. God designed the human body as he did and inspired Apostle Paul to speak the words he did. Because this model is a perfect example of how a family, a church, or a business should work. Yes, each part of the body, both literally in the biological sense and spiritually in the eternal sense, exists as its own unit. Each part also cooperates to form a single entity. Each one depends upon the other either directly or indirectly, to function normally. This is not exclusive to a certain group of people. Rather, this is true for humanity and the universal family of God. You see, whether you were born in poverty or riches, whether you are male or female, whether you are black, white, brown, none of this matters. What matters is remembering you are indeed a unique creation of God, imbued with your own strengths, abilities, gifts, and purpose, as well as integral part of something much larger, a body 
of brothers and sisters bound by our physical and spiritual makeup the world over. The health of that body. In fact, its very existence is dependent upon how you function both alone and in conjunction with those around you. This leads to a third fundamental question. What is being born in the image and likeness of God? There is obviously much more to the science of biology than the several elements previously noted. For now, this brief introduction will serve our purpose. Remember, science alone cannot provide us with an adequate understanding of eternal topics, as I touched on just a moment ago. Without a spiritual context and connection, such information is ultimately meaningless. For a broader view of personal identity and belonging, we must look to the Word of God and allow His Spirit to reveal to us the truth surrounding the origin of humanity. In Genesis 2 and 7, Scripture states, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. This passage deals with three components. First, we have the dust of the ground. Dust is defined as fine particles of matter. What is matter? Matter is the substance of which all material is made. Matter can be directly experienced through the senses. It has properties which can be measured, such as mass, volume, density, and qualitative properties such as taste, smell, and color. All physical bodies in the universe are made of matter. Galaxies, stars, planets, rocks, water, and air. Living organisms like plants, animals, and humans are also composed of matter. For example, the water we drink, the food we eat, everything we see is made of matter. When the structure and composition of matter is investigated, it breaks matter into smaller and smaller pieces. As stated earlier in the lesson, living organisms are made up of cells. Cells are composed of molecules, which are sets of atoms bound together. Our body is our outer part containing our five senses, with which we contact all the things of the physical material realm. This is what gives us our connection to the physical world we inhabit. What is the breath of life? Second, this passage talks about the breath of life, and this leads us to a different view of biology. I would like to introduce the term heredity, which is the passing on of traits from parents to their offspring either through asexual reproduction or sexual reproduction. This is where the offspring cells or organisms acquire the genetic information of their parents. Every child inherits genes from both of their biological parents, and these genes in turn express specific traits. Some of these traits may be physical, such as hair, eye, and skin color. On the other hand, some genes may also carry the risk of certain diseases and disorders that parents may pass on to their offspring. Why is this relevant? Just as our physical being represents the genetics of our earthly parents, the breath of life gives us the genetics of our Heavenly Father. Recall from Genesis 2 and 7 that the human spirit originated from God as his breath of life. And according to Genesis 1, 26 and 8, where it states, and God said, let us 
make man in our image after our likeness. This gene powers our body so that we can function as spiritual beings. Our spirit is our innermost part with which we contact God and substantiate all the things of the spiritual realm. The spirit in man gives us the ability that makes us human in the image of God. We have self-awareness, intellect, creativity, and the ability to appreciate beauty. We also possess a unique personality and temperament and the capabilities to manifest the attributes of our Heavenly Father. Just as we are connected to the physical world and must learn about our physical self, we are created as spiritual beings and must learn about our spiritual self. This is clearly explained in 1 Corinthians 2, 11 through 14, where it states, For what man knoweth the things of man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God know no man. But the spirit of God, now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Ghost teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man received not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Jesus addresses this in John 3 and 6, where it states, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. In this passage, Jesus specifies a clear distinction between that which is born of the flesh and of the spirit. The Bible is consistent in this distinction. In this overview of the natural and spiritual creation of humanity, we are given a glimpse of of only the duality of humanity. However, humanity at this point is still not whole. This leads to the third component, the soul. The word soul in the Bible is, trans, is a translation of the Hebrew word nephesh and the Greek word psyche. The Hebrew word literally means a creature that breathes, and the Greek word means a living being. The soul is the entire creature, not something inside that survives the death of the body. Consider how the Bible shows that the human soul is the whole person. When God created the first man, Adam, the Bible says that man became a living soul. Adam was not given a soul. He became a living soul or a person. This divine essence of the human soul is what sets the human being above and apart from all other creation, even the angels. The angels may be more spiritual, but the human being is more godly. No creation can possess true freedom of choice. A creation by definition has and consists of only what its creator has imparted to it. This is its nature. And its every inclination and action will be dictated by that nature. It is only in the human soul that the creator imparted his own essence. The human soul is thus the only true 
supernatural being aside from the creator. A being that is not limited by its own nature. A being that can transcend itself. A being that can choose to not merely react to its environment, but to act upon it. A being whose choices and actions are therefore of true significance. The soul is provided with a compass and a guidebook to navigate the challenges of physical life and the resources to fortify it. The word of God is the divine blueprint for creation that guides and instructs the soul on its mission. The word of God is also food for the soul. By studying the word, the soul ingests and digests divine wisdom and is supplied with the divine energy to persevere in its mission and overcome its challenges. The soul, the person of man, is likewise composed of three parts, the mind, the will, and the emotions. God's word proves this clearly. First, the scripture consistently identifies the mind as part of the soul. For example, in Psalms 139.14, I praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. Knowledge, no doubt, pertains to the mind. This is evident in Lamentations 3, 19 through 20. Remembering my affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall, my soul had them still in remembrance and is humbled in me. These verses clearly indicate that there is a part of the soul that knows and remembers. This part is the mind. Then there is the will, which is also part of the soul. An example can be found in Joshua 24, 15. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then in Deuteronomy 30, 19 through 20, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore choose life that both thou and thy seed may live. Finally, we can see from the word that the emotions are part of the soul. In Song of Solomon, 1 and 7, tell me, O thou whom my soul loveth, where thou feedest, where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon. For why should I be as one that turneth aside by the flocks of my compassion? In Luke 10, 25 through 28, and behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answered and said, Thou shalt love 
the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. There's much more to the soul of humans. By nature, we are creatures of desires and longings, living beings who eagerly seek to live but are unable to acquire or preserve life by ourselves. The soul refers to the whole person in need of God, who is the only one who can preserve a human being or extinguish the self forever. This is evident in Matthew 10, 28. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Therefore, Nephesh, Psyche, refers to the totality of the person as a center of life, emotions, feelings, and longings that can be fully realized only in union with God. To review, our body is our outward part containing our five senses with which we contact all the things of the physical and material realm. Our soul is our inner part, containing our mind, emotions, and will, with which we contact all the things of the psychological realm. Our spirit is our innermost part, with which we contact God and substantiate all the things of the spiritual realm. My brothers and sisters, we see in Genesis 2 and 7 that God created humanity whole, with each component working together to glorify him on earth. Dear brothers and sisters, as we navigate our way through this journey of spiritual discovery, I would like to remind you that this journey is to raise our awareness about who we are and for each of us to ask ourselves, do you know what's invested in you? As we move forward in this endeavor, let the following four C's work in combination with the Spirit of God to guide you. That we move forward to give insight into these four C's. I would like you to answer this fundamental question. Which of the four C's currently plays the most important role in your life? The first C is that of curiosity. The strong desire to know or learn about something. We demonstrate our curiosity about the world around us daily. Some believe we are driven in this regard due to an internal hunger or thirst to know more. This belief, called the drive theory, views curiosity as a natural current urge that must be satisfied in much the same way that we satisfy our hunger by eating. Another belief, the incongruity theory, Maintains our curiosity is motivated when we are presented with something that does not fit into our normal understanding of the world. We have been taught to view the universe as predictable and orderly. When this is challenged, our curiosity is piqued. Those who hold to the drive theory believe that curiosity is simply another trait that human beings possess, while those who hold to the incongruity theory believe that external Situation invoking. If we look to scripture specifically, 
Genesis 2, 16 and 17, it would appear that the latter view is the one which reigns true. And the Lord God commanded man, saying, of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For in the days that you eat thereof, you will surely die. Note that Adam's curiosity was not aroused by this statement from God. There was no internal drive urging him to test the validity of what he had been told. Rather, he simply accepted what God said as truth. Curiosity was not challenged until Genesis 3, 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said it to the woman, Yea, has God said you should not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, You may eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden. God has said, you shall not eat of it. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die. For God does know that in the day you eat there, then your eyes shall be opened. And you shall be as God's knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took up the fruit thereof. And did eat and gave also to uh, her husband with her. When a direct challenge was posed to what Adam and Eve had previously accepted without question, their curiosity was awakened. We know that in verse 7 through 11 that this action caused immediate spiritual death. And humanity was introduced to a fallen state where there was once union, there's division. When the command was violated, the action, this action caused a ripple effect throughout creation. Because as the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 5 and 12, Wherefore, as by one man's sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. No more was there harmony, because humanity was not whole. This passage would seem to give Grim hope. But the Apostle Paul came back in Romans 5, 19. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Another scriptural example relevant to this topic can be found in Exodus 3, 1, 2, 3. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to her. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush burned with fire. The bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Again, it was that normal. Something beyond the ordinary for these biblical figures that motivated them to be curious. This would suggest that human beings are motivated to question their environment and circumstances when faced with incongruencies rather than simply an inner urge. This, of course, may be a matter of debate. What is far from debatable, however, is that these two scripture examples demonstrate how curiosity 
can either mislead us into wrongdoing or propel us to greater understanding. I urge you in your own life to allow it to do the latter. For curiosity in its purest and most innocent form leads us to discovery. This is very important in this lesson because curiosity will help uncover something previously unknown, such as our true self, including knowledge, a familiarity with self that is gained through experience or education, and purpose, the reason for which you were created or exist. The second seed is that of faith, complete trust or confidence in someone or something. It is generally understood that there are two types of faith, natural and spiritual. The former has its origin in the physical realm and is supported by a person's natural physical senses and experiences. This type of faith is based on what can be seen with one's eyes and felt with one's hands. The familiarity involves in sitting on a chair and trusting it to support your weight. The latter has its origin in the spiritual realm, as defined by Scripture in Hebrews 11 and 1. Now, faith is the substance of being hopeful. The evidence things not seen. Perhaps a bit more in-depth means of defining faith can be found in the words of the same verse in the Amplified Bible. The assurance, the confirmation, the title deed of things we hope for being the proof of things we do not see and the conviction of their reality. What this means is that spiritual faith operates on what our inner being perceives as truth rather than what is revealed as such by our senses. Capable of either waning or growing, this type of faith is a spiritual substance that operates from within. Chapter 11 in the book of Hebrews is devoted to extolling this type of faith in person after person throughout biblical history. Naturally, it is this type of faith that I urge you to cultivate. Do not for one moment doubt that you can, for faith is a gift that has been given to all humanity. Romans 12 and 3. For I say, through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. Every human being can believe. What we believe is based upon what we hear. As Romans 10, 17 Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. God speaks belief into us through the power of his word. He tells us who we are, what we can do, and how we can accomplish his will. This faith must be developed over time. Luke 17, 5 and 6. And the apostle said unto the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith as a grain of a mustard seed. You might say unto this sycamore tree, Be ye plucked up by the root and be planted into the sea, and it shall obey you. Here the Lord Jesus gives an important message regarding the development of our spiritual faith. It must be put into action every bit as much as our natural faith as a person displays when 
They sit in a chair believing it will support their weight. As we do this, as we seek to live lives defined by true spiritual faith, it leads to confidence, certainty about the truth of who God is and who we are in his will, as well as to obedience, compliance with the request God makes of us and direction God gives us, both of which are vital in order to be submissive to God's will. The third seed is the seed of steadfastness. Scripture abounds with examples of an individual who exhibit this characteristic. But aside from the Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps none did so more notably than Job. In Job 1 through 22, you find this man of the land of us. The scripture says that he was perfect upright, one that feared God and skewed evil. He had 10 children, seven sons and three daughters. He was very rich with substance, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke oxen, and 500 sheep donkeys. The script describes him as the greatest man of the East. The script tells us that all of this would come under attack with the purpose of trying to prove that Job's integrity was predicated based on the things he possessed. In reading these scriptures, you find that the attack of Job centers on the things he has. This tells us that Satan would try to prove that everything Job had was his reason for holding on to his integrity. All of this was done by Satan to prove to God that no one would truly be dedicated to him without the blessing of the things he gives them. Satan believed that if all was taken away, Job would curse God to his face. This was true then, and it's still true today. Like Job, we must look to God as our source and trust that God always has our best interests in mind. This passage concludes by saying, Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshiped and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord took it away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Many times, when one is under attack, the person tends to respond with rebellion, becoming bitter, and begin, begin to blame God for the difficulties that has arisen. This passage, however, shows us how to properly respond to the strategic attacks that Satan may bring against us. Rebellion is the enemy of steadfastness. Whatever one of us must learn is how to deny the emotional influences in our lives. We must instead continue moving forward to execute our purposes without losing sight of them. Emotions are God-given, but emotional responses to external circumstances and situations are often inconsistent with the Word of God. Without surrender to and guidance by the Spirit, it becomes easy for a person to fall victim to Satan's attempts to sway them away from God's plan or message. A person must therefore be persistent in adhering to the Word of God and the faith God has instilled within them. As the Apostle Paul extols the church 
of Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brother, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord, to do otherwise is to allow circumstances to find us as we give them power to direct our course. When a person instead remains steadfast and adopts this trait into their character, it leads to consistency, reliability, stability in one's convictions, as well as trustworthiness both in the eyes of others and in the eyes of God. The final seed of patience, a seed which grants a person the ability to wait for the fruition of something. Job again serves as an excellent example of someone who adopts this trait into his character. In Job 2, 1 through 10, again, there was a day when the sons of God presented themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from whence come you? And he answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that fears God and excuse evil, and still holds fast his integrity, even though you move me against him to destroy him without cause. Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. Yea, all that a man has will he give for his life. But put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but save his life. So when Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with the sword balls from the sole of his foot unto his crown, and he took him a potsherd and scraped himself with all, and he sat down among the ashes. Then said his wife unto him, do you still retain your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said unto her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. What shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. The forces of evil can be aggressive in their attacks. Many of us have had some experience with these attacks. I remember going out to witness downtown Dallas under the freeway as I was talking to some homeless people there. This guy caught my attention because he was very articulate. My first thought was, why are you here? Yes, I must admit that drugs, alcoholism, etc. crossed my mind. As we began to talk the conversation began to get comfortable. But well, we both started dropping our guard. At this moment, I felt comfortable enough to ask, how did you end up under the freeway? His eyes welled up, and he told me about the type of money he was making, how well he lived, the home, car. But most important thing was his family. And how much he loved him. While at work one day, he gets a call. 
His family is in a car wreck and they were killed. He said it shook him to his core. And at that point, he was lost. This was how he ended up under the freeway. What could I say at that point? I couldn't change what happened, but I could point to the one that could restore that which was lost. But he had to understand that it would begin with him. This encounter wasn't just for him. It was for me also. Because I realized that all I seen was the state of the person. But God taught me to pay attention to the journey. Because we never know what is the reasoning for why people do say or end up where they are. This passage teaches us that we can overcome all obstacles if only we wait and rely upon the Lord. Despite all that happened to Job, he held on and maintained his integrity. In the end, all that he lost was restored because he never wavered in his belief that all things happen for purpose. In time, he knew that purpose would be fulfilled, even if he never came to know what all the attacks meant. In Romans 8.28, all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. This verse also teaches that one must accept delay or disappointment, not with frustration, but with understanding, knowing that God delays or not God denies. When this is understood, it becomes far easier for a person to recognize that being patient doesn't mean sitting around waiting for things to happen. Rather, working as hard as long as is necessary without giving up until he or she reaches his or her destination. The cultivation of patience in this manner leads to experience as an individual personally encounters, undergoes, or lives through a period of trial or delayed expectation. It also leads to growth, the process of gradual increase in maturity a psychological term used to indicate how a person responds to his or her environment or circumstance in an inappropriate and adapted manner. This, my brother and sister, draws us near the end of this first step in our ongoing journey. Before I close, let me first encourage you to understand and remember that the illustration of the human body as used by the Apostle Paul to represent the church is not a new one. From the beginning of eternity, God always intended for the design he used for our bodies to be a literal symbol of the spiritual design of his church. The sacrifice that Jesus made for us was not for naught. It was made so humanity would have the choice between a sinful state and a redemptive state. What is hid in the sinful state is the origin of humanity found in Genesis 1, 26 through 27. That humanity was made in God's image after his likeness and was given dominion over everything on earth. What is revealed in the redemptive state is that we have God's DNA in us. This is evident in 1 John 4 and 4. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Because great is he that is in you than he that's in the world. 
I asked you a question very early on in this message. I pose that question to you again now. Do you know what's invested in you? If you do not know, are you willing to nurture curiosity to uncover what Scripture says about this? Even if the revelations are sometimes difficult to hear, are you willing to accept through faith the truths Scripture sets forth, even if they contradict what you have been taught to believe? Are you willing to remain steadfast in the face of trials, even though 2 Corinthians 4 and 4a, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, will do everything in his power to keep you in his embrace? Are you willing to demonstrate patience, even though this journey will require time, effort, and energy to complete? If your answer is no, my brothers and sisters, the first step is to follow the blueprint laid out in Romans 10, 9 through 10. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and thou shalt believe in thy heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believe unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. I encourage you to humble yourself and allow the power of God through the Holy Spirit to draw you through God's agape love. Agape is an unconditional love that looks beyond your faults and sees your need. If you've already done this, I encourage you to continue developing the four C's outlined in this lesson. I invite you all to join me again as we move to the next lesson and delve more deeply into this issue, discussing our state as related to culture and how it influences us. Until next time, remember, you're more than what your society or your circumstances say you are. You are a creature fashioned and blessed by the highest God, sincerely and deeply loved. So as you embrace this lesson, think like it, talk like it, live like it, and in doing so, you will become an example to those around you, evidence that this life can be lived. May the Lord bless and keep you all in his glorious light and love. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for your word today, Lord. We thank you, Father God, for your grace and your mercy, and most of all, your love, Lord. We ask, Father God, that you bless us, Father God, to be able to embrace this word, Father God, to hide in our hearts that we may not sin against you, Lord, and to allow, Father God, this word to be manifested in our lives, Lord, that we can truly be an example to others, Lord, because there are so many people out there hurting, so many people, Father God, that's lost, so many people out there, Father God, don't really understand, Lord, that you're real, Father God, that you're right there with your arms stretched out, Father, telling them to come home, Lord, that you will show them, Father God, what it truly means, Father God, to know what's invested in them, Lord. These prayers I pray in Jesus' name, Lord. And Father, I thank you for it. Amen and amen. You just listened to another episode of the Pastor William Evans Podcast. Pastor William Evans Podcast was recorded live in the studio with final editing before uploading. Subscribe today to the Pastor William Evans Podcast or visit tcuic.org for more godly-inspired content. Don't miss the next episode, and God bless.